This thing's not going to blow up now, is it, Ed? <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name's Barb. I'm an alcoholic. I don't really know where we're going tonight. I um, spent some time, about an hour and a half this afternoon, going through some things just to to uh, get my mind set on what I want to talk about tonight, because it seems like what my job is is to give you a report on Bob, what's been, what's been happening to him, and um, uh, what this program's been doing for him. A uh, couple of things really kind of stuck in my mind. Um, I um, I guess I was about eight months sober, and um, I was up here one night, and um, Eddie Bauer, who was a long-time member at the time, he, uh, I was talking about gratitude. And Eddie said, um, this is what AA is all about, is to teach you a way of living where things are going to get progressively better in spite of you. And as an alcoholic, you don't know how to live that way. And this is what Alcoholics Anonymous is going to teach you, how to live a life where things are going to get progressively better. Eddie, I think at the time, was probably sober 25 years. And he said, this has been the best year of my sobriety. And those of you who, I know several of the guys remember him, uh, I believe that man was incapable of lying. And I believed Eddie. I look back over the last year, and I can just tell you flat out, it's been the best year of my sobriety. Uh, Eddie never had, didn't lie to me. Uh, I came in uh, fellowship in April of 1970. Um, and had I known what would have happened in my life in those almost 18 years, it probably scared me so bad I'd probably walked out the door and gotten drunk um, because I wouldn't have been able to handle it, I don't believe. But what it's taught me is if that's been true, and it has been true for, say, 18 years, I am so grateful, I can hardly wait for this next year. Can hardly wait. Because <clears throat> I've been doing things far beyond I ever thought I'd do. I don't believe I would have been alive. In fact, I know I wouldn't have been. Um, so that's one thing that I really want to talk about, is just how things have gotten so much better, and they keep getting better. As long as Bob gets out of the way do the things I'm supposed to do. They've got a drill I'm supposed to go through. God's got some plans. I have no idea what they are. Somebody said the other day, I loved it, they said they wake up in the morning and their morning prayer is God surprise me. And I kind of like the thought behind it. Then another thing that I liked uh, that I came across, by the way, I, I'm one of these inveterate note takers. I hear things I like and I always grab a thing and write it down and Take it home and drop it in a shoe uh, carton I have. I, I got a lot of notes in shoe cartons. and uh, My shoes don't come in boxes. They come in cartons. Um, I wear a size 15, and there's no box. you got to get a carton. Uh, I go through all this stuff and sort it out and what's important and all that crap. And what they tell me is if you just steal from one person, it's called plagiarism. But, but if you steal from a whole bunch of people, it's called research. And I've done a lot of research in AA. Things that were important to me. 
And I came across something. This was in a tape I heard. It was a quote from Bill Wilson. He talked up in Founders Day in Akron in 1967. And, and Bill said, um, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a history of our personal success stories. He says it, it, it's rather a history of our colossal human failure converted to the happiest kind of usefulness through the divine alchemy of the, of the living grace of God. It's not, a, it's not a success story. I'm not sitting here as a, as a success. I'm here as a colossal failure. I failed as a father, as a husband. I failed drinking. I failed. When I came through the doors, I was a flat-out failure. And that's really the, the only credential I have for sitting here tonight. Because I'm a drunk. Without that, I've got nothing to, I've got no, 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 no background. So I'm a, I'm a failure. But converted, changed, means changed, to the happiest kind of usefulness. Happy. I love that word, happy. Uh, <clears throat> one advantage of being around a while is you get to see a lot of what I call white-knuckle sobriety. I've never understood it. I just, I'm the kind of drunk I am. There's no way I could be sober on a half-two basis. I was sober at first because I was scared to death I was going to drink again. So sure, I sobered right at first out of fear, but somehow that got converted to where I enjoyed being sober. It probably took a while. It probably took me nine months just to get to the point of where I could say, maybe staying sober is okay. But I know it was at least a year and a half before I could look you in the eye and tell you that I enjoyed staying sober. Um... Today, if somebody were asked me how come I'm not drinking, it wouldn't occur to me to tell them I can't drink, I'm an alcoholic. Hell, I can drink, I just can't drink successfully. You know? <laughs> but that's not why I'm staying sober. I'm staying sober because I like it better this way, happy. So, converted to the happiest kind of usefulness. The fact that I can sit down and talk to some other drunk and say, yeah, I know what you're talking about when we talk about fear, resentments, or self-pity or whatever you want to talk about. And that drunk knows I'm not judging him. He knows, he or she knows that I've been there. The happiest kind of usefulness through the divine alchemy. And I love that. I love the Bill's choice of words there. The old alchemists uh, in the Middle Ages were always trying to change lead into gold, you know. But the way he works on the drunks is always amazing to me. And it seems to be it's got to be through some sort of divine intervention through the living grace of God. And uh, why he would pick a guy like me to get sober, I don't know. I gave up a long time ago trying to figure that one out. Hell, I wasn't even a good boy scout. You know, it, it's not something I can sit back and say I deserved it. The only thing I can tell you is by the time I got here, I'd been properly horrified. Now, we use the term hitting bottom. Uh, I don't much uh, go for that term because bottoms are different with people. The only bottom that I've ever heard of was we had a guy that used to say, uh, if you got your wristwatch on when you came in, came to AA, then you're a high bottom drunk. If you didn't have a wristwatch, you're a low bottom. 
And I, that's the only denominator that made any sense to me. But uh, being properly horrified. I wasn't one of these people that came here saying, hey, I never want to drink again. It never occurred to me I wouldn't drink again. I knew I didn't want to drink right now. That, that scared me. I, I'd go petrified the thought of drinking. And uh, so I came in one of these guys saying, you know, what do you do to stay sober right now? What do you do to stay sober right now? I always thought my problem was quitting drinking. And I got the Alcoholics Anonymous, and they says, Bob, that's not your problem. Your problem is you don't know how to stay sober. Hell, you quit all the time. Your problem is you keep starting up again. And that's what we'll teach you. We'll teach you how not to start up again. If you learn how to stay sober, you won't have to quit. Now, I'm, I'm one of these guys. I didn't like quitting. Quitting was a bitch. Uh, I found that it's a lot easier to learn how to stay sober than to quit drinking. Quit drinking. Damn, that's son of a gun. I didn't like it. So I came in, and listen, and, and, and my story really that I really have to talk about is what happened to me since I got here. Because I was an uninteresting drunk. God, all I, I did, all I did was drink. I'll get into that in a little bit. I have one other thing I'd like to say, too, uh, uh, about the big book. I, I happen to be one of these big book people. Uh, uh, there was an article in Grapevine a couple of years ago. I don't know if any of you read it. But the, the writer was making some points in it about a discussion group, and she categorized a group of people as spiritual thugs. And a um, uh, light went on. And I think that's what I am when I, when I talk about the big book. I'm, I'm a big book thug. I'm, I'm tempted to take this big book, and particularly with a newcomer, and start hitting them with it, you know that somehow this is going to get through because it's the only way I know how for a person to get sober. I don't know any of these other esoteric and, you know, hands-on and touching and crap. I know this works. I know this works. So I tend to be a big book person, and uh, my general attitude is if I can't find it in the big book, I tend to dismiss it uh, because that's where I found the answer. So I... I wound up finally in uh, Good Sam Hospital in April of 70, and my sponsor came to me and handed me a copy of this book, and he said, here, Bob, read this and do what it said. And that was the instruction he gave me. And I started reading it, and whenever he told me to do something, I did it. Um, I, I learned something very important about that. I found you don't have to understand what you're doing. You don't it's immaterial whether you agree with it or not. You don't have to like it. You don't have to be able to explain it. You don't have to want. You just if you just do it, you will find out that you're you'll be sober in spite of yourself. This is what I found about the book. I still find that that works today. I have seen people do what this book says to do in order to prove that it won't work. And they're sober today. So it makes no difference what your motivation is. You don't have to be able to know what you're doing. If you do it, the way I read the book, you're going to wind up sober. So somebody says, well, it's too early for me to do this yet. There's no, I've never seen a timeline in the big book. you got to wait so long before you start doing this. My first written inventory was done on my second day. 
because that's how far I got in the book by the second day on the doing part. Um, I take that back. There is one timeline that's in the big book, and it's after the fifth step. It says to go home and meditate for one hour. That's the only frame of reference you're ever going to find about time. Meditate for one hour over what you just talked about. That's, that's all there is. You see, I think in the doing of this, this is something that literally keeps us busy while God gets us sober. Somebody once suggested that's what the 12 steps are, and it's not all that sacrilegious, I don't believe. You work those steps, do what those steps tell you to do. While you're doing that, God's going to keep you sober, get you sober. The book has got a lot of examples of that. Uh, if you remember in Bill's story, remember when Abby was talking to Bill? And Bill says, my God, you know what in the world happened to you? And Abby said, you know, I got religion. What his words were is he found that God was doing for him what he couldn't do for himself. Um, chapter 5, we're accustomed to reading that a lot of times. A, we're alcoholic, couldn't manage your own life. B, that no human power could relieve our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. That the last promise that we have. It said we'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So it seems to me what I was given was a, a mechanic, a path, a recipe if you will. It says you do this. Recipes work the kind of the same way. If you got a recipe for chocolate cake and you follow the directions, I don't give a damn if you can't cook. You're going to wind up with a chocolate cake if you follow the directions. And it seems like that's what these 12 steps are. It's just a recipe for sobriety. I can't explain a lot of things. Don't have to explain them, though. It's kind of like the guy taking castor oil. I know that works. I can't make it, can't explain it. I just know it works. And Somebody says, well, I don't believe you. You tell them, well, hey, take all, take some. You'll find out it works. Take enough castor oil. You'll find that damn stuff works. You don't have to like it, explain it, understand it. None of that. Just take it and you'll find it works. I think AA is kind of the same way. Well, let's see. I probably should get into a little bit of drinking. Um, but you know, I did drink. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was born terminally weird. Um, I just have always seen things differently. I, as a kid, uh, I used to say I thought I had a pretty normal childhood until I found out I wasn't born in a manger. Uh, that's not true. I've always thought I was just odd. Uh, seems like all I can ever remember. I remember first going to church. Uh, all I ever heard was I was going to hell. Because you either hadn't done it or you thought of it, it was the same thing as doing it. Uh, and so at an early age, you know, I, I'd resigned myself. That's where I was going to wind up. Um, I can remember, well, I know we didn't agree. We, I was born in the Bible Belt South, Oklahoma, Texas, and uh, raised there. And I remember, um, well, we didn't believe in playing cards. It seemed like anything was fun we didn't believe in. And I started playing cards and found that wasn't so bad. And, we didn't believe in movies, and I went to some movies and found that wasn't so bad. And we didn't believe in dancing, and I didn't know how to dance. Uh, 
But I lived on a street with uh, three girls, and uh, being the only boy that age, about 15, I guess it was, um, Saturday night we'd go up to their house and we'd literally roll up the living room rug, get out the records, and they'd teach me how to dance. And uh, God, I loved it. I had more fun than the barrel of monkeys. And I remember going to the preacher one day and said, you know, how come we don't believe in dancing? And he says, well, uh, when you get a girl and you hold her close to her, you, you get urges. And I says, you do? And he says, yeah. God, I could hardly wait for the next Saturday night. <laughs> we got there and rolled up that living room rug. And not damn put those records on. I got this girl and I held on real good and tight and found out, by God, he's right, you do. Uh, hell. Uh, no, they take their dancing seriously. I remember the story they told about the uh, marriage counseling class for the newlyweds. Uh, one of the couples asked, it was all right if they had uh, sex standing up. And the minister thought a while, and he says, uh, well, while it's true you're married, uh, no, it would be a sin because if anybody else saw you, they might think you were dancing. So, uh, <laughs> oh, and, and of course, everybody knows what dancing leads to, right? Drinking. Um, <laughs> But by the time I was 21 years old, I was looking for a 21-year-old nymphomaniac that liked to play cards, goes to mo go to movies, and dance. And I figured if she had owned a liquor store, that would just be a bonus, because I got into drinking. I don't think I ever became an alcoholic. I think I was one of these guys that would walk along just waiting for booze to catch up with me, because I immediately became a daily drinker. Uh, I know of only one period where uh, I didn't drink. I was hospitalized once for two weeks for a reaction to penicillin. And later I found out, didn't know it at the time, they had me on some tranquilizers, which they said uh, they had me in there for observation. And uh, they, they said they gave any healthy male tranquilizers uh, when they're just having for observation so they won't be chasing the nurses. They just tranquilize them. And I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about tranquilizers. But as far as I know, I drank uh, every day. I considered myself a heavy social drinker. That's what I used to put on the insurance forms. You know, you fill out insurance papers. Uh, I uh, drank, um, well, of course, toward the end, I had no idea how much I was drinking. I have no idea. Uh, I remember when I first came in, uh, I would listen to people talk about the things they did in their drinking, and particularly when they would be moving. You know, they'd be here and they were then in Miami, or here they were in Chicago, or the east side of town, the west side of town. And I would sit back and wonder, gee, didn't that interfere with their drinking? Because I was a, con I was, I was a um, committed drinker. I drank. Um, in October of 68, uh, I was carried literally feet first into Christ Hospital, made the first of two hospital visits. Uh, in those days, they put drunks in the psych wards, and um, I'd done a pretty good job. The, uh, um, the doctor told my wife that I would not live the night and go ahead and make the funeral arrangements, and she did. She called the local funeral home and uh, said, uh, when the hospital calls, go pick it up. Because I'd, I'd become an it by then. 
she called me old yellow. I, I turned yellow. And uh, she always claimed her problem was bigger than mine because I'm running around trying to hide fifths of whiskey and she's running around trying to hide a six foot four, 250 pound yellow drunk. And, uh, she, but after the second night, uh, he said, no, he's going to live and uh, probably be a vegetable the rest of his life. But um, I spent six weeks in the hospital, came out knowing two things. The doctor said, Bob, you're an alcoholic, and if you ever drink again, it'll kill you. Stayed dry for 14 months. Um, more of it was just getting over, getting well, because I had really done a pretty good job of myself. So a lot of it was just getting, I know it was, uh, like I said, this was in October, I got out in December. I remember feeling finally came back in my feet, uh, God, around March or April, sometime in that range, because uh, my feet were numb, and I uh, just had no, no sense of feel at all. And uh, so I really was physically getting over. But the following December, uh, I began to wonder if that doctor might be wrong, and uh, I tossed off a neat shot, I guess, to see if I'd die. I can't tell you, I mean, if there certainly was no crisis, certainly was nothing that I would like choose to blame it on, other than the fact I wanted to see if that doctor was wrong. Um, and uh, that was a Monday night, and the following Monday night I did the same thing. <coughs> I waited another week. My conclusion after those uh, two drinks in the two weeks was that obviously the doctor had made a mistake in my case. Um, I mentioned that I was allergic to penicillin. Uh, you know, the doctor told me, he says, Bob, if you ever take penicillin again, you've got about seven or eight minutes to live without medical help. You know, it has never once crossed my mind to sneak a shot of penicillin. <laughs> I believe that, man. Um, I find a lot of similarities between my allergy to penicillin and my allergy, if you will, to booze. Uh, I don't know why I'm allergic to penicillin. I don't think it's because I led so bad a life or something that uh, some sin is being revisited on me. I know some people are allergic to it and some aren't. Uh, nobody's ever asked me, though, why I was allergic to penicillin. Uh, a lot of people ask me why I was an alcoholic. Um, but there's no, not a lot of difference. I don't think I'm responsible for being allergic to penicillin. I think I'm responsible... Now that I know what's wrong with me, to do something about it. But I have no responsibility for being allergic to penicillin. I feel the same way about my alcoholism. I don't think I'm responsible for being an alcoholic. I've, I've yet to meet the first alcoholic that ever said that was his goal in life. You know, I didn't go, I didn't start off, I didn't want to be a bum. That's the last thing I want. I enjoy drinking too much. Uh, my responsibility to my alcoholism is now that I know I'm an alcoholic, to do something about it. Yeah, I'm responsible for that, but not for being an alcoholic, no. It's true, nobody ever sat on my chest and poured booze down me. I did that, but hell, I didn't know that it was alcoholism. Besides that, the book says that the alcohol is a symptom of the problem anyway. The book says that we drank essentially because of the effect produced by alcohol. That's why alcoholics drink originally. They start drinking, essentially because the effects produced by alcohol. I think it's one of the most amazing paradoxes in the world. I can sit here tonight and tell you that's the same damn reason I quit. <coughs> essentially because the effects produced by alcohol. It was killing me.
That's why I had to quit. But after those two drinks in the two weeks, man, that was it. I started back what I call social drinking. And it fortunately didn't last too long. I uh, only drank for about another three and a half months, a period of my drinking that is so disjointed and not tied together and just snatches and pieces of it. I can no more uh, talk about that than a man in the moon. Uh, I wound up this time in the psych ward over at Good Sam. I did my postgraduate work there. Um, I've got graduates from Christ, psych wards at Christ, and psych wards at Good Sam. So I got two pieces of paper that says I'm sane today. Um, came out, spent two weeks there, and while I was still in the hospital, started coming up here. And that's where the adventure started. Um, I started going through this book and doing what it said. Uh, didn't understand a lot of it. Still, in fact, is the great thing I love about this book is it keeps changing for me. Uh, I've never finished reading it. Uh, I keep it right at my bed, and I keep going through it. When I get to page end of one page of one sixty four, I just go back to the beginning, and start over again. I don't read the personal stories too much. But every time I go through that book, I'm always finding something that's different. And all that's telling me is something's been happening to Bob. Bob's learned something, or Bob's changed, or it now means something. Um, and that's the adventure that I've had. And it has been one of growth. Um, AA seems to have given me a way of living that's teaching me that you, you make a life of progress where things get better, and that's an awfully happy way of living. I was always brought up with the idea of perfection. You had to be right. And I've seen right kill an awful lot of alcoholics. Right doesn't really matter. Um, it's kind of nice, but if you want to drive an alcoholic in an absolute state of paranoia, Giving the choice of being happy or being right. We're driving nuts. <laughs> really well. Because somehow I got the idea that if I was right, then nothing else mattered. You know, you can get just as drunk when you're right as when you're wrong. I did. Because I wasn't wrong all the time. Lots of times I was right. But I still got drunk. So I've discarded right and wrong as much as I can in the way I live and the way I think. I found that, uh, well, this week anyway, being right in 25 cents will get you right on the bus. And that's about all being right's worth. You know. And we were talking, Eddie and I were talking about coming up here tonight. I've got one little flag that goes off my mind. Whenever I see something start interfering with my happiness, that's enough to tell me right there. Back away from it. It simply isn't worth it. Um, the book promises us that we can... Live a life happy, joyous, and free. That's what it says. And this to me is what I'm after in Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> Seems like the steps, though, were written that way for me. Because you don't have to do them right either. All you got to do is just do them. It doesn't make any difference. But they're worded that way. That first step where it talks about where we admitted... We we're powerless over alcohol. How many times have you heard people sit up here and say, 
Well, it wasn't until I, I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic that, that first step really kicked in for me. Well, I don't know what they're talking about. I agree with them. I understand it. But what if, what if that step were worded that way? What if it said we accepted we were powerless over alcohol? The best I could do when I came here was to admit it. And that was going a long, long way. You know, that's the best I could do. Later on, yeah, I accepted it. Sure. Fact is, today, I'll, I approve of it. But the best I could do when I came here was to admit it. It gave me room to make progress, to grow. That second step says came to believe. It could have said believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It could have said that. But it doesn't. It says came to believe. It gives me a chance to grow. I could come, come to, and then come to believe. I couldn't have, if I'd have believed anything when I got here, it'd probably have been wrong anyway. You know? The best I could do is come to believe, so that's progress. And you find that written all the way through those steps, where it talks about being entirely ready to have God remove you. Entirely ready. Uh, progress. Eleventh um, um, step. Sought to improve our conscious contact with God. What if it said perfect? Sought to perfect our conscious contact. I can't do it. I can improve on it. No way I can. I'm a human being for Christ's sake. Best I can do is improve. That 12 step says we tried to carry this message. It doesn't say do it right, do it wrong. It says just try. That's all you can do. Just try. So the whole cast of all the words in those steps give me an alcoholic that opportunity of growing. And that's why they're so great for me. Because I don't have to sit back and say, well, I did this wrong or I did that right. Why isn't it working for me? I did it right. Hell. Improve it. Uh, my pastor, my church, I go back to church now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about this God love that I never heard as a kid. Uh, he would have to have loved me. Uh, and we don't really see eye to eye. He uh, he doesn't understand alcoholism, which is okay. Uh, he's willing to agree that alcoholism is an illness if I'll agree that all illness is sin. <laughs> We're not communicating. But he thinks I'm a little odd in that uh, all I'm looking for is a, living a life where I'm improving. I think that a loving God, as I understand him, is willing to accept this alcoholic who's just trying to improve, make progress, and not perfection. Perfectionism almost killed me as a drunk. I almost died from it. And I think this God, in my understanding, is willing to accept this alcoholic just making progress <coughs> and finding that it's a pretty happy way of living. Because I found that in that conversion to this happiest kind of usefulness really works. And it always blows my mind. Because I'm not that smart a guy. You know, I was a lot smart I thought I was smarter than I was. But I'm just a pretty damn dumb guy when you get right down to it. The kind of things that happen to me. 
I sure as hell am not smart enough to know what's good for Bob. I proved that to me a long time ago. Uh, I'm the worst manager of my life. When I said my life is unmanageable, it was then it is today as much as I can keep out of the way. Bob's a terrible manager of his life. Whenever Bob's running his life, it's like having an idiot in charge of his life. And I know this. So given that as a starting point, I got a lot of motivation to keep this idiot from running Bob's life. Um, but what it does give me, though, is the chance then of saying, all right, you know, God surprised me today. What's going to happen? Um, and I never know what's going to happen. I'm never, when I say surprised, I'm pleased a lot of times, but I can't say that I'm um, surprised because I just expect in fact, even expect isn't uh, quite the right word. You know, coming in, the best I had going for me was just, I hope this will work for me. And I got that merely by looking around the room and saying, well, God, if it's working for them, maybe, maybe this will work for me. Just maybe. So the best I had going for me was just that hope or desire, whatever word you want to use. Robert Browning had a phrase that he used. He said, if you desire faith, then you have faith enough. Just the desire of it. I think that's in AA. All it really takes is that getting started. Just the hope, the desire that maybe it'll work. Then later on, that hope gets replaced with expectancy. Because you look around, you see it working in your life, you see it working in other people's life. And so that hope, Gets replaced with expectancy. You expect it to work. So, I'm, but I don't think expected uh, expected to work is really the whole whole thing. Because today, I I insist on it. It's that expectancy has been replaced with with insisting on it. I've had too many proofs. I've had too many examples. Joe Leith, uh, just a dear friend, lives in Wino Joe. Many may have heard him talk. He has an expression he used. He says, uh, this is a room full of miracles. And if, and if we could see each and every one of the miracles in a room like this tonight, I, each of us could see all these miracles, we'd literally be blinded. And I really think that's true. If we could hear all the stories, each individual, feel them, we'd literally just be numb, and deaf, blinded from all the miracles that are in a room like this tonight. And that's what we are, in just a room full of miracles. On something that we don't deserve a hell of a lot of credit for, if you think about it. Just because we're sober? Hey, it was killing me. You don't really... You know, they do not celebrate my penicillin birthday, the day of my last <laughs> penicillin shot. Nobody ever has said, Bob, I'm proud of you that you're not taking penicillin anymore. They just don't do it, you know. But, so I don't really think we deserve a lot of credit for not drinking, you know. Because if you're like me, it was killing me. But you see this program work in the lives of so many people. And you sit back and say, well, by God, I just insist on it then. I just insist on it working for me. If I look at 
gratitude. A lot of time I have difficulty talking about gratitude only because it was such a foreign, uh, I knew envy and I knew, you know, why does the good stuff always happen to the other guy when I got here? I didn't know anything about gratitude. I had to learn it. I had to practice it, to be honest with you. But gratitude, I find, is a very funny emotion. It's um, mutually exclusive. You, you cannot be grateful and unhappy at the same time. You can't be grateful and feeling sorry for yourself at the same time. You can't be grateful and mad at the same time. It just kind of excludes all of these other emotions. You just can't do it. And I'm pretty well convinced that, uh, well, there's a line that goes like this. If I'm grateful enough, I need never drink again. Right? I like that. So gratitude's a very important thing for me to remember. And it doesn't take me long to go through my mind mentally and tick off five or six things I'm grateful for. Now then, whatever problem I think I'm getting ready to face or look at seems to disappear. I have a hard time putting it in words in the sense of my own words, but words I've heard, heard other people use. Um, there was a movie, Little Big Man. It was the old uh, story of Custer. But Dustin Hoffman was in it several years ago. It replayed not too long ago on television. There's an Indian chief in there. I don't know if you all saw it. Chief Dan George. And when he wanted to express his happiness, his gratitude, he had an expression that he used. The old Indian chief, he says, my heart soars like an eagle. And when I think about gratitude, those are the words that kind of come to mind. My heart soars like an eagle. Not great words. Um, but I know this. I know if I'm grateful enough, you know, my mind's going to be where it's supposed to be. It won't be thinking about Bob. It'll be in the attitude that I'm supposed to be in as this program teaches. <coughs> well, where am I in my sobriety? Um, they tell me you don't have to start growing up in AA to be about 20 years sober. But I'm still in my adolescence. <coughs> so I got another couple of years before I start growing up. Now the only problem is, is you want to be sure that you get grown up before senility hits in. So, you know, you got you got a little time problem. So I got to worry about that one. But I intend to use the next couple of years enjoying this because I've been having a ball. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like that little kid. They asked him once what puberty was, and he thought a while. And he says, well, you know, I screwed that one up, haven't I? They asked him what, a, what adultery was. Hell, I've even screwed that one up, so I'll forget it. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> but, no, I'm thinking about enjoying the sobriety now because that seems, seems what was presented to me. was, hey, take this. You've heard enough. I've already been to hell. I know what hell's like. Hell doesn't scare me because I've been there. Dr. Paul Olinger, he uses his story about he can vision the drunk who really hasn't tried to work this program but just stayed sober and died and went to heaven. And he imagined God asking him how was life down here on earth and he can imagine that drunk saying, oh, it was terrible, just a veil of tears. I didn't like it worth a damn. I'm so glad to be up here in heaven. 
And Paul says he can imagine God saying to this drunk, gee, that's too bad. I gave you a book that told you how to be happy. And all you had to do is follow those, follow the recipe, follow the instruction. Tell you what, I think if you weren't happy down there, I don't think you're going to be happy up here. Maybe you better go down to the other place. I think maybe that's the charge we're given, is we're supposed to be happy. If all that new drunk saw was a people, bunch of people moping around in sobriety, you think they'd come back? I don't think so. I think the reason the new drunk comes back because he comes back to the same reason I did. I couldn't understand laughter. What have these people got to laugh about? I was convinced that they knew that, hey, there's a new guy, let's laugh it up for him. And I'd hear somebody burst out in laughter and whip around to see who it was, and my God, they weren't even looking at me. They were having the time of their life. I couldn't understand, how could you? What do you got to be funny about? What's funny? And today, I, I know what's funny. We sit and laugh at some of the damnedest things. Some guy's telling you about this person who took off their motorcycle, hit this telephone pole, and went, yeah, and we go, ah, ha, 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 ha. Everybody thinks it's hysterical. These earth people sit back and are aghast. You know, they say, my God, you know, didn't he get hurt? And, but there's a... They're just a, a macabre sense of humor that we seem to have. And, and, and it's unique. We can, we can share it among ourselves. And, but we can't talk to earth people about it. I couldn't understand. People used to, oh, they'd tell stories about throwing up, and people would laugh. And, and I never laughed at that because I never heard them talk about raw onion sandwiches. Uh, I'm one of these guys, I think one of the greatest inventions since sex and the coffee bean is the raw onion sandwich. It's great eating. You take a little white Bermuda onions and slice that sucker about three-eighths inch thick and slap that between two pieces of bread with some mayonnaise. I love it. You, after eating one of those at night and you threw up the next morning from drinking, that is a damnedest thing. And I remember having to come to the decision, do I stop drinking or stop eating raw onion sandwiches? You can't tell that story to earth people. They will back away from you every time. <laughs> every time. You can talk about it in AA and they understand what you're talking about. Of course, I decided to get rid of my raw onion sandwiches. Today, I'm happy to report to you that I'm back eating raw onion sandwiches and they're still as damn good. I love it. I think our book shows us what we got to do to stay sober. I think sometimes people perhaps read it, read between the lines rather than just read the black and white. I've heard philosophy type people, theology type people say that man makes a mistake in reading the Bible because they read it as if it's man in search of his God. And they make the point the Bible wasn't written that way, it was written by God in search of man. And I think our big book is kind of written the same way. I think people tend to read it as the alcoholic in search of sobriety. And it wasn't written that way. It was written sobriety in search of the alcoholic. These people knew how to stay sober. So they gave us sobriety and they said, here, 
We're in search of alcoholics. People want to read this book and follow what we say. I know this. When I read it that way, I'm taking I out of it. I'm taking the comparative out of it. Like I didn't do that yet, or I haven't done this, or I wouldn't have done that. I've got Bob out of it. All it does, it lays it out in a rather matter-of-fact, prosaic way on here's what you do to stay sober, if that's what you're interested in. Do this, you're going to wind up sober in spite of yourself. It's not judging me. It just says, here, do this. And you're going to stay sober. I said earlier on, I've always worked on the wrong problem. I always thought my problem was quitting. I didn't know how to stay sober. I had to learn how to stay sober. That's one thing an alcoholic doesn't know how to do. I'm, I can, I'm, I'm, one thing, the only thing I knew how to do when I came here was drink. I considered myself a professional drunk. That I know something about. I didn't know a damn thing about staying sober, and that's what the book taught me. But I've always worked on the wrong problem. It's kind of like the two guys that were hiking out in the woods, and they came on this bear, and he started chasing them. The one guy runs over to a log and pulls off his hiking boots and puts on his Nikes, his running shoes. And his friend says, that's not going to do you any good. You can't outrun the bear. And the guy, his friend says, I know I can't outrun the bear. That's not my problem. All I got to be able to do is outrun you. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm the kind of drunk that knowing I could not run that bear, I'd have run myself right into the ground. I never picked a fight I could win in my life. Never as a drunk. Hey, it's been a happy time for me. Uh, uh, blessed beyond my what I would have ever have thought would have happened. If you go home tonight, and the person you go home to says, you know, what did the guy say tonight? You've been listening if you can say two things. This program works. If you read this book, it works in spite of you. And secondly, but there's some things you must do, must do, if you want to stay sober. You'll hear some stories about there are no musts in AA. My copy of the book has got it in there a lot of times. There's a lot of musts in it. So I can get away from somebody that tells you there's no musts in here. There are a lot of musts in there. Or take what you want. Leave the rest. That'll kill an alcoholic. What a drunk wants to do is go to sleep. Tell him what he needs. He or she needs. It's what they need. I didn't know what I needed when I got here. Somebody had to tell me what I needed. So there's some crap you can hear in here. But you've got one safeguard, and that is, where does it say it in the book? And my suggestion is, if you can't find it in the book, you better ignore it, because it might kill you. I personally think some bad information is killing more drunks today than booze is. For what it's worth. And I want to thank you for asking me to talk tonight. You know, I get terribly preachy, I think, sometimes. Just put it down that yeah, I'm not that. Hell, I'm a drunk. I'm sold to my product. You're damn right. I really am. Uh, so don't discount that.
But uh, and I'm pretty opinionated, which is okay. I don't I don't mind that. I'll stand that. Uh, I'm a big book thumper. I can handle that too. Uh, but I believe in it because it's worked, and uh, it's worked way beyond my fondest dreams. Uh, I don't think I got that much more to say to you. I want to thank you for listening to me tonight and, and keep coming back because this thing really does work. Thank you.